Well, welcome to The Grove. Uh, my name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here. Um, it is so good to see you guys here uh, this morning. We are continuing our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. So one of the things that marks us here at, as the church, we are expository preachers. Uh, what that means is the majority of time we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. So we are walking um, verse by verse, sentence by sentence through the book of 2 Corinthians. And so I want to pause just a second before we dive in where we're going to be here today and just give a brief recap as far as what this book is and kind of where it falls in the relationship between its author and who it was written to. So it's known as a book of the Bible, 2 Corinthians, but originally it was a letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth. It's the second letter that we have uh, recorded by him, so hence it is 2 Corinthians. Um, but this isn't the second letter that Paul wrote. So again, we looked at this timeline last week, and so again, just to breeze through, this is Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth. So he first visited it in A.D. 50 uh, and planted the church. We see this uh, description given in Acts. Later he wrote uh, a letter uh, to them. This is described as the previous letter in 1 Corinthians. 5. So 1 Corinthians isn't actually the first letter that we have that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, there was this previous letter. Then he wrote this letter to them known as, we'll call it letter B, which is 1 Corinthians. And in it, he kind of confronted a number of issues that were happening. We'll, we'll go back and reference one in particular in 1 Corinthians 5. There was this issue of sexual immorality, and Paul calls them to go through this process known as church discipline to remove that member from their congregation. This gets brought up again here in 2 Corinthians. We'll get to that later. So there are a number of issues within this new and fledgling and young church with new Christians in this growing town. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians to help kind of guide and direct them. Well, then he goes and he pays them a visit. Now, this is referred to as the painful visit a number of times in 2 Corinthians. Um, and so Paul goes and here has to confront face-to-face -face a number of the issues, including people that were beginning to try to undermine Paul's authority. So they're beginning to try to completely remove any kind of sense of credibility he had. They were attacking his character. They were attacking what he was saying. Uh, and so they were trying to undermine him. And so Paul's coming now and having to confront them, saying, hey, don't listen to these people, these kind of super apostles, and he'll reference these at the end of 2 Corinthians, said, but listen, I am an apostle. I've been sent by God. Here is this gospel, uh, but they wouldn't listen, so Paul had to leave. It didn't end well. So Paul, instead of coming again uh, and having another painful visit, he writes a severe letter. And so this is what was referenced last week. We saw at the very beginning of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. He talks about writing this letter in tears with extreme anguish. So again, he's here confronting the issues that arose from the painful visit. Well, he was waiting then to hear how was the letter received. He wanted to know, did they listen in the severe letter? Did they not? He was wanting to go find Titus because Titus took the letter to them. So Paul goes to try to find Titus. When he finds Titus, he hears from Titus. Paul, they listened. They've turned back to the gospel. They are following um, the teaching that you've laid out, uh, and they have repented and come back. And so Paul now um, writes 2 Corinthians, this fourth letter, letter D that we have. And this is now uh, kind of the state of their relationship. He'll come and visit one more time, reference in Acts 20. But this is where we find ourselves in the relationship in 2 Corinthians with Paul and the church in Corinth. There have been all of these issues, per, uh, interpersonal questions of apostolic authority, questions of sin that was running rampant in the church. And Paul had a very honest and a very affectionate, but a very difficult and strained relationship with this church. And so as Paul now has told them, I wrote this letter to you so I didn't have to come and have another painful visit. He's now going to go back and reference what should you now do whenever someone is removed from your congregation, like I told you in 1 Corinthians 5, but yet they turn and repent and come back. What should your response be? B. And this is where we find ourselves now in 2 Corinthians, and we'll pick up in verse 5 through verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of the hardback ones next to you. Um, if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that with you. Uh, that is our gift to you. And if you grab one of those, it'll be on page 1023 and 1024, uh, I believe. Uh, 1023 and 1024. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes this. He says, If anyone has caused pain... He has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. Now this punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. 
Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So here Paul is writing, and he's going to tell them, thinking of a very specific purpose, a very specific situation, giving them guidance on how now to relate to this sinner he's referred to as that's now come back and been forgiven. So as we do that, I want to look through kind of three uh, things today. We'll see the consequences of sin, we'll see the goal of discipline, and we'll see the why of forgiveness. The consequences of sin, the goal of discipline, and the why of forgiveness. First, the consequences of sin. We see this right in verse 5. Paul says, listen, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, and not to exaggerate, to all of you. So Paul begins here, and he's talking about this one person who has caused pain within the congregation. Now, we don't know exactly who this is, and we don't know the circumstances around it. We don't know exactly what the situation it is. It could be referring to the situation referenced in 1 Corinthians 5, which we'll get to in a little while. It might not be. It could be. Um, maybe there was one person who was kind of getting together this group that was kind of leading the charge against the mutiny against Paul. And Paul comes, maybe in a severe letter, it tells them, you need to remove this person who's causing division in the church. And that person now has come back and repented. And Paul is saying, we need now need to restore him. Or it could be something else entirely. God, in his wisdom, hasn't told us what it is, but we understand the essence that it was someone who sinned openly, unrepentantly, both against the congregation and against Paul. But they've now repented and come back. And what Paul tells them, he says, listen, there are these consequences of sin. It's caused pain, not so much to me, but to some degree to all of you. So especially if this was done against Paul, I love Paul kind of minimizes his personal involvement with it. He says, listen, these cause pain to me, but not so much to me, but to some extent to all of you. You guys have had to walk through this process of removing someone from your church. And that's caused incredible pain amongst you. That there were consequences of unrepentant sin that have affected every single person within this church and me as well. So Paul begins and doesn't lessen and acknowledges the pain and the consequences that sin brought in. Now, we're going to spend a good bit of time on the second and third point, so I'm just going to move on because I know myself, and if not, uh, we would be here for an hour and a half. So here we are, moving on to point two. This isn't the pace we're going through the whole time, I promise. The second point we see, though, Paul moves past the consequences of sin, and he gets now into what the goal of discipline is. Look at verses six through eight. He says that this punishment by the majority, that's an interesting phrase, we'll come back to that. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. Well, what person? The person that caused me and all of you pain. And the punishment was sufficient. So as a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Now, the, the process that Paul's referring to here, particularly in verse 6, this punishment by the majority, that word punishment is the only time that word's used in the New Testament, this Greek word. It's a very legal kind of word. It's this kind of, uh, this action, this pronouncement that's taken, and he's referring to this formal process of church discipline where the congregation came forward and said, hey, we're, we can't have confidence that you are a Christian because of the way in which you're living and so the church, as a majority, voted to remove him then from, that member, uh, from the membership, from the fellowship. And that's what Paul's referencing, this punishment by the majority. But now it's interesting, there in, uh, we need to take an aside for just a moment, because maybe you're not like me. I was uh, gracious, uh, gratefully uh, raised within the church, a good church. Uh, I heard the gospel growing up. But church discipline was something I never heard about. It was never referenced. I didn't understand it. And as I began to grow and kind of hear some things, I began to have a lot of misunderstanding about what it is. And so we need to kind of pause right here and clarify exactly what Paul is talking about. What does the Bible say, and how then should that play itself out within our churches? So first, one of the main misunderstandings that I've heard and seen about church discipline is that it's kind of punitive in action. So it's like, hey, you've sinned, we're going to come and we're going to punish you for what you've done. You've repented, doesn't matter, you need a punishment. 
So there will be formal discipline that takes place, whatever that might be, withholding the Lord's Supper, removing someone from church, telling them that they can't come to church anymore. I don't know what it might be, but perhaps that's maybe some of you. You've experienced church discipline like that in the past. Listen, people have absolutely abused this in the past to begin to pick and choose what sins to discipline, what people to discipline, to what extent. Oh, they're in leadership. We're not going to say anything about them. But here's someone else. We might say something to them. And it's punitive in action. But what we see here is what the goal of church discipline is. And the goal of church discipline is not punitive, but restorative. The hope of discipline is for people to be folded back into the church. It is verses 6 through 8 that this is what would happen, that someone would repent and come back to find Jesus, and then that the congregation would embrace them again. So this is the goal. So what exactly is it, and how do we find this in the Scriptures? Because listen, if it's not in the Bible, we shouldn't do it. Right? This is why here at the church, our main conviction, the first one we have is that we are ruled by God's Word. So what that means is we want to open the Bible and say, God, what have you told us, and we will listen and follow you, because we believe that you are giving us this for our good and for your glory. So is it in the Bible? If it's this man-made thing, well, then we don't need to do it. But if it's in the Bible, then we need to pay some attention to it. So the two main places we see it is actually in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians 5, I want to flip back there for just a moment. It'll be on the screen uh, if you don't want to flip, but you can flip if you would like to. It'll be in 1 Corinthians 5 for just a moment. I want to read most of verses 1 through 13. So here Paul is, again, remember, this is a young church, new Christians, and there are these issues happening within it. So Paul writes this second letter to them, but it's 1 Corinthians, just to be confusing, as Paul is. And so he writes this letter in chapter 5, and he writes this. Listen to the situation that Paul describes. He says, It's actually reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, I want to pause right there just for clarity. Paul's writing to the church, and he's saying, listen, here's what I'm hearing. There's a situation amongst you in which a man is sleeping with his father's wife. More than likely what we understand this to be is it's um, a man is sleeping with his stepmother. And the church isn't saying or doing anything about it. And Paul's like, listen, here's, here's a situation. The church doesn't, I mean, the world doesn't even agree with this. And you guys aren't doing anything. So Paul continues in verse 2. He says, are you arrogant? Shouldn't you be filled with grief? And remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who's been doing such a thing. Now, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, here's this situation. This man is living in unrepentant, open, public, and serious sin you have to remove him from your congregation and, in other words, hand him over to Satan. Tell this man, hey, if this is what you believe will bring you joy, then run after it. But if you continue to do this, we cannot have any confidence that you are a Christian. This is absolutely contrary to what God has said. But why does Paul say to do that? Look at the end of verse 5. Hand the one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That even here, Paul's saying, listen, you're not just doing this to punish him. You're doing it because he's not understanding the seriousness of his sin. And so you do this hoping that he would return, hoping we get a situation like 2 Corinthians 2. So Paul continues, he says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? So clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. Skip down to verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. So remove the evil person from among you. So Paul's telling them, listen, if you don't remove this sin from your congregation, it's unrepentant. 
it will spread throughout. It's like leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole batch. And so remove them so that both they might be saved in the day of the Lord and so that this sin doesn't spread. But then Paul clarifies and goes, listen, I'm not telling you don't talk to anyone who's sexually immoral in the world. He said, because then you couldn't talk to anybody. He said, the world is going to act as the world is going to act. That shouldn't surprise us. And we are called into it. We're called missionaries into it. He said, I'm clarifying and say, I'm not asking you just get a little holy huddle of people who never talk to anyone who sins ever. Because first of all, you would be lying. And second of all, you wouldn't ever hang out with anybody. Paul's saying, what I'm telling you to do is the person that claims to be a brother or a sister, the person that claims the name of Jesus and then lives openly and unrepentantly in contradiction to what Jesus has said. Those are the people that we have to go confront, and then if they continue to be unrepentant, then removing them, uh, the evil person from among you. So Paul's clarifying here, and he's following really the, the uh, system, the layout, the instructions that Jesus gives his disciples. Paul didn't make this up on his own. This wasn't first found in 1 Corinthians. It was first found in the words of Jesus. As Jesus in Matthew 18 was telling his disciples. This is the other kind of main text that we see. You can flip there or again it will be on the screen. Jesus in Matthew 18 lays this out for his disciples in regards to confrontation and sin and what discipline should look like. He says this in verse 15. He said, If a brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. And so it ends there. So Jesus says, listen, first thing first, you see sin or sin against you, go and confront. And if he listens and repents, that's it. It's over. Praise God, you've won your brother. He continues, though, at verse 16, he said, but if he won't listen, then take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And so, again, he says, now take two or three, then, if he won't listen to you. And, again, if he repents, if she repents, praise God, you've won a brother or sister over. He continues in in verse 17. He says, but if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell it to the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, then let him be like a Gentile or a tax collector to you. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two or three of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled over what Jesus is talking about, verses 19 and 20. What does it mean to bind and loose? What's it mean that Jesus is there where two or three are gathered? Well, it's important that we understand the context of where those come from. It's following Jesus laying out this process of what church discipline looks like, what healthy, godly, and biblical confrontation looks like when there's open and unrepentant sin. Jesus is saying the authority to be able to step in finally and then remove someone from a congregation isn't given to a pope, it's not given to a bishop, it's given to the church to the congregation. The keys of the kingdom are given to the church. That's the final step that we see. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. That's why he doesn't just say, hey, you have to remove this person. I'm an apostle. He tells them, when you gather and I'm with you in spirit, then remove the person. He understands the authority is given to the church. There were two or three are gathered. There is this authority that God has instituted to his church. That's why we are a congregational church. We understand that the final authority doesn't rest with me. It doesn't rest with our elders or pastors. The final authority of this church rests with the congregation. Not because we think it's some cool leadership style, but because Jesus has told us to. And so we fall here underneath these words. So Jesus gives us this process. Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians 5, what it looks like in real life. But then we have to ask just a couple of clarifying questions before moving on. So again, if this is the first time you've heard this, it's like, oh my goodness, is this like, so every like sin, if I kind of lie, if someone asked me if I watched Dancing with the Stars last night and I say no, but I did, like is this then going to be told to the church? Well, no, here's three categories that we use to be helpful in regards to this. What, what kind of sin falls into this kind of formal process of church discipline? We'd say these three words, outward, serious, unrepentant. Outward, serious, and unrepentant. First, outward sin. So it's not like, hey, you look a little bit greedy today. <laughs> little bit prideful. I was looking at that Instagram post and the filter was just, uh, well, so we may have to, no, it's not inward sin. We can't see into people's hearts. It is outward in nature, something that's objective and observable. So first is outward. Second, serious. 
So again, you may lie about dancing with the stars because you're worried about your reputation. And listen, that's a sin that you'll have to stand before God and give an account for. But it's not something that we would move through this process of formal church discipline. It would be something that's serious. A situation like 1 Corinthians 5. Goodness, a situation like we hear over and over again, unfortunately within the church today, of leaders abusing their authority, either uh, emotionally, spiritually, or sexually. And you know what keeps happening? The church keeps covering it up and the name of Jesus is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. Because the church is more worried about an institution than it is about the name of Jesus. And so it tries to cover up this sin and go, oh, let's not worry about it and not listening to what Jesus and Paul have told us to do in dealing with the seriousness of sin. So when there is outward and serious sin, we move then into this process. But then third, another really important category is unrepentant. At any moment there is repentant, the, the repentance, the process ceases. It stops. Now, there's a, a host of thorny issues that come with that. If someone's caught and doesn't confess, it can be difficult to know someone feel bad because of consequences they're receiving because there's genuine repentance. So we have to walk through that. We don't entirely know. But the moment that there is repentance... It ceases. Now, there may be, again, some consequence if there's leadership or anything else, or if there was actions done against the law, it doesn't mean the person doesn't go to prison. The person still goes to prison, but we go, praise God, you're going to prison as a Christian, and you'll one day be in heaven. So it doesn't mean that the church acts as its own kind of legal authority. Oh, there's repentance? We don't have to report this. No, no, no. The church does not have the sword. The sword has been given to the, uh, to the local governments. Paul writes in Romans. So we don't have that authority. We have the keys to the kingdom, not the sword of God's justice. And so anytime there's an action or we hear of sin that happens it's against the law, we report it immediately. Immediately. And if there's repentance, praise God, discipline ends, but you still may have to go to prison. Uh, and so this is one of the issues we see as the church moving in, not understanding what Jesus has told his church to do. And how to deal with these kinds of sin, outward, serious, and unrepentant. And so this is what we understand in the church to do. So why would we do this? Why would Jesus tell his church to do this? This feels judgmental. This feels kind of holier than thou. Who are we to think that we can stand above and know exactly how people should live? Why should we do this? Well, I would say uh, for a handful of reasons, but these are four quickly, I would say. One, for the warning of the danger of sin and its consequences to the church. Part of the reason why we want to take this seriously is that we can see the deadliness, danger, and seriousness of sin. To bring it forward, none of us are too far, but by the grace of God, we are who we are. Each one of us are not far. It is within us to do all sorts of things that we could not imagine. So when we see the consequences and the seriousness of sin, that acts as a warning for us to go, oh my goodness, this is what this could lead to. And so it acts as a warning of the danger and consequences of sin. Second, for the corporate witness of the church to a watching world. Again, I said this earlier. When churches don't do this seriously, what do people say about Jesus? What do they say about God? They go, oh, God must care a lot more about keeping the institution together and making sure money's coming in than he does about actual godliness. And so handling this well and handling it biblically makes sure our corporate witness to the church or to the world is reflective of who God actually is. And third, it's for the good of the one who's trapped in unrepentant sin. The worst thing that could happen is a church collectively going, you know what? It's okay. You don't have to change your life. For the church in Corinth to come around this man and say, just, it's okay. You don't have to change. You don't have to leave this affair. You don't have to, it's just keep living it. God's grace is greater. You don't have to stop sinning. That's the worst thing that could happen. And so there's a sense in which stepping back and as a church going in tears and in grief saying, we can no longer confidently affirm your profession of faith because of the vast list of unrepentant sin in your life. And so to remove them from the congregation going, we can no longer affirm that profession. And the hope in that is for the good of the one trapped to hand them over to Satan that they may one day come back. We'll see a picture of this in just a little while. But fourth, ultimately, for the glory of God by reflecting his holy nature. The church should strive for holiness because God is holy. And so as we let sin live openly in the church, then we are reflecting to a world, then a character of God that is not true. 
So that's just the, a, a kind of quick 40,000-foot view as far as what it is, where we see it in the Scriptures, and why we do it. So if there are questions you have that I didn't cover, again, please email me. Don't go home and begin to, begin to think or question or run. Just email me, cbrazier at lifeofthegrove.org, uh, because this is something the church has not taught well on that lets sin grow within the church. But then on the other end, churches will sometimes abuse. And so if there are questions you have, please email me. But one of the questions that I often hear that pops up is people quote it. I think people quote it sometimes thinking it's the Bible. It's not the Bible. It's Tupac who said this. But regardless, it's something I hear often. Well, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me, man. Who are you to step in and tell me what I can do? Only God can judge me. And this is often quoted uh, as well. It's a similar vein from Matthew 7. They go, okay, fine. You don't want to quote Tupac. We'll quote Jesus. Here's what Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. So what are you going to do with that? How are we going to go through church discipline when Jesus so clearly says, don't judge unless you'll be judged? Jesus is like, remember, this is what Tupac said. This is what he's telling his disciples in Matthew 7. Judge not lest you be judged. Well, people love, it's one of the most quoted verses in the Bible I hear beginning to be even more than John 3.16, but people end at verse 1. So I want to just read the next four sentences of what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He does say, do not judge so that you won't be judged. But he continues, he says, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure that you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but didn't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, uh, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. So here's what Jesus is saying. Again, we haven't gotten there yet. What Jesus is saying, this continues to be quoted. Listen, people, Christians are so concerned about specs, and there's kind of a a bit of humor here. Uh, Jesus is like, uh, people are worried about specs, and there's a two-by-four sticking out of people's eyes. And like, hey, um, uh, you got got something in your eye. I don't know if you can see it, but the whole time there's this huge plank of wood sticking out of our own eye. And Jesus is saying, this is how people are acting. It's hypocrisy. Verse 5, you're a hypocrite. You're looking at the speck, and there's a plank in your own eye. So again, people are like, well, there it is. Jesus is saying, stop worrying about specks. Don't judge. But look at verse 5. Jesus says, first, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Jesus, again, goes, here's the process. Begin with self-reflection. Ask, Is there sin in my heart? Is there something that I am doing that is wrong? Is there a plank in my own eye? Before I even confront in Matthew 18, let me pray and see, am I viewing this wrongly? Am I thinking the worst of this person? Am I assuming sin when there may or may not be? Uh, Is there a plank in my eye? Are there other pressures that are driving me down and causing me uh, to not handle this well? Okay, it doesn't seem to be, Lord. Well, then now let me step in and take the speck out of my brother's eye. This is the relationship that we're called to. So it's not one of condemnation. We're just always the sin police looking around. It's self-reflection first, but then encouraging and comforting one another. And at times telling people when we can't see, hey, you might be in sin here. You should think about it because we can't see, we often can't see the sin in our own lives. It's one of the reasons why God gave us community because we are not God. We are not omniscient, and we cannot always see the sin in our lives. So God has given us others to look in and go, hey, listen, you know that I love you. You may want to consider this. This is what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews, 12, or in Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. It says this, it says, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So what should we do instead? How do we watch out and make sure that an evil, unbelieving heart doesn't live within us? He says, so do this. Encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. The author's saying, listen, we've got to come around each other and encourage and comfort and confront and at times call out because we have to make sure that doing it daily while it's still called today so that none of us are hardened by sin's deception. Because we saw that sin has a kind of corrosive and spreading effect like leaven. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. But you know something else about sin? It's incredibly deceptive. That's what the author's saying here. We want to make sure that none of you are hardened by sin's deception. So it not only spreads, but it's deceptive. It's hard to see. 
It's deceiving. In fact, it's not only hard to see, at times we may think it's good. We're deceived by it. It's like Eve in the garden that went, you know what? This is good for food. This does look nice. I don't think I've had this apple before. I think I'm going to take it. And she was deceived, and we are as well, over and over again. Not only does it deceive, but it also hardens. It has an effect on our hearts. And so one of the things we see here is I think that uh, we can feel like, oh, we don't need this process of discipline, whether formal or informal, because we're fine. I can just live my life. I don't need anyone to judge me. I don't need anyone to call me out. But God is saying clearly, listen, sin is deceptive, and we need one another. There may be times that we may not realize it, and a friend comes along and says, hey, consider this, and brings us back. Or that might be more serious, in which there is genuine and true sin, in which then someone comes and confronts and walks through that process in Matthew 18. Whatever it may be, we need it because sin is deceptive. And so to assume that you will always be able to spot sin when it shows up in your life, Friends, you're misunderstanding two things if you think you can do that. You're misunderstanding the enemy's cunningness, and you're misunderstanding your awesomeness. The enemy is incredibly cunning and deceptive and wants to be able to just plant a small little seed and is fine with taking it decades to grow. For most of us, the the most dangerous things in our life aren't humongous sins. It's not like you're going to leave church today and go and start selling crystal meth and murdering people. Hopefully. (laughs) But there may be a bit of discontentment in our heart as we begin to look through social media and see that our lives aren't matching up to others. There might begin to be this division between you and your spouse where you begin to become disgruntled about how they're treating you as you look to others and how their spouses are treating them. There might be anger that begins to take root in your heart that's slowly making its way out into the lives of first your dog, but then maybe your children, and then maybe your spouse. The enemy is fine with that taking decades. Listen, there's an outstanding book by C.S. Lewis called um, Screwtape Letters. It's incredibly um, uh, imaginative. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and he writes the book from the perspective of a demon. And so a demon is writing to his nephew demon. So it's this old experienced demon demon writing kind of advice to his younger nephew on what it looks like to tempt Christians. So Screwtape and Wormwood are the two demons' names. And so every chapter is this letter. And there's this one one part where Screwtape writes to Wormwood, and he he says it this way. He says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Friends, we need one another. We need one another in opening up the doors and having a community in which people begin to step in and go, hey, I just want to make sure you may or may not see this and doing it in love and doing it out of grief, sometimes informally and again at times formally, because we misunderstand the enemy's cunningness. But again, we misunderstand our awesomeness. We think, oh yeah, I've got this, I can tell. But friends, we are weak, we are often blind, and we cannot see it. And we need community. We need it around us. Sin is deceptive. Community is necessary, and encouragement and comfort and confrontation is helpful. So regardless of what shape discipline takes within the church, discipline and the goal of discipline should always be restoration and being shaped in the image of Jesus. Always. Think about the word itself, the word discipline. It comes from the same root as disciple. And so we have, even right now, there's discipline happening as we're teaching God's words, this positive discipline. And here are some examples of kind of corrective or restorative discipline. But it's the same goal of restoring and building into the image of Jesus, discipling and disciplining one another. And so again, to just encourage that, to not begin to try to call out every sin that we ever see, ever, ever. It is a glory of a man to overlook an offense, it says in Proverbs. There are times which we just need to forgive and not bring it up. So the worst application, if you're maybe go back to your spouse and you begin to say every single thing that annoys you, probably going to be unhelpful. So don't do that. What it does mean is beginning, especially amongst the church, 
within communities, within small groups, within ministry teams, beginning to walk alongside and begin to have the kind of relationship that wants the best for the other person. And at times has harder conversations and not just sweeping things under the rug for the hope of encouraging and uh, pushing people more into the image of Jesus. So that is the goal of discipline is to have people look like Jesus, to return and to repent. And this is what we see in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. What we see there is the goal. This sinner came back. Praise God. I've seen this once in a church I was in in the past. was at a members meeting in which years before, this one member had a number of uh, things that was happening. Um, he was stealing from members in the church. It all kind of came out. And he said, listen, I don't care. I'm done with it. And he left. And so he was removed from the congregation. Years later, though, while I was at this church, was at a members meeting in which this man came back and stood before the congregation, asked for forgiveness, repented, and then went to go and join another church that was right down the road. But it was incredible watching this play out. As this man was then handed over to Satan and ran after this thing, but eventually came back and said, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And watching the way in which the congregation responded and the overwhelming vote and affirmation and reaffirmation of their love for him, this man just broke. And I watched this play out. That's what Paul says, reaffirm your love to him. It's again, kind of this formal announcement. We said there was this punishment by the majority in which there was this vote to remove the member. Now vote and bring him back reaffirm your love for him so he's not overwhelmed by excessive grief so that's the goal of discipline is restoration now moving on again i told you it wasn't gonna be the same pace as the first point moving on finally the why of forgiveness the why of forgiveness verses 9 through 11 paul says i wrote for this purpose look at verse 9 i wrote for this purpose why why should you do this to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So why should we forgive? Well, first it follows God's command. It follows God's command. Look at verse 10. He says, I do, or verse nine, he says, I did this to test your character and to see if you will be obedient. So I told you to forgive to see he's tying it to their character and to their obedience to Jesus. Because one of the things that Jesus clearly taught on was forgiveness. There was no if, ands, or buts about it. Jesus was incredibly clear. Matthew 6, uh, right after the Lord's Prayer, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Jesus is saying, listen, here to, you, if you're not forgiving, then you're not forgiven. You don't understand what's been offered to you if you can hold that kind of grudge. He continues in Matthew 18, a few chapters later, and this is right after, literally the next verse, Jesus has just finished verses 15 through 20, this process of church discipline. And the very next verse, verse 21, this is, is this not Peter? Classic Peter here. Look at verse um, 21. Then Peter approached Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Now here's what Peter's doing. Peter is going kind of the, the rabbinical teaching in that day is that extraordinary forgiveness looked like forgiving someone three times. Right? In Amos 1, there's this example where God forgave the nations that were um, uh, pushing in on Israel, forgave them three times before judgment came. So the teaching was extraordinary forgiveness, forgive them three times. So here's what Peter does. Peter's like, hey, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Three? No, 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 I'm going to double it. You know, I'm not just going to double it. I'm going to double it and add one. That's how extraordinary of a forgiver I am as Peter. Lord, should I forgive seven times so much more than what anyone else is doing or teaching today? And how does Jesus respond? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. And so if you're doing the math, you, you miss the point. <laughs> Jesus is not saying forgive a sinner 490 times and when it gets to 491, well, that's kind of the end of it. Jesus is making the point that there should be an extravagant and infinite amount of forgiveness we offer to others because of the extravagant and infinite amount of forgiveness that's been offered to you. And Jesus is saying, and he continues then on into the parable of the unforgiven servant 
who was forgiven this incredible debt and then goes in like this small little measly debt, he goes and holds this man to it. And Jesus is like, no, he doesn't understand what he's been forgiven. He doesn't get it. And so he's pressing in and telling them, you have to forgive. This is God's command. Paul wrote this so that he would be, they would be obedient. Forgiveness is not optional for the follower of Jesus, period. We are called to that. Now, forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. And I can't dive into that today. But forgiveness, one in which we go, I'm not going to hold this over you, is commanded to us by Jesus. And if that was it, if Jesus told us to forgive, that's the only reason we would need. We wouldn't need any more. But there is more. I feel like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. So Jesus, not only, why should we forgive? Not only because it follows God's command, but also because it reflects God's character. It reflects God's character. Again, we should forgive because we understand how we've been forgiven. That's the root of it all. The problem, if you have an unforgiving heart, it's not what you're doing. It's that you don't understand how much you've been forgiven. This is what Jesus is pressing on and saying, the one who understands that he stood neath a debt that he could never afford, when we grasp that, then we begin to clear the debts of those around us. It doesn't mean we just sweep sin under the rug. We confront, but there's a difference between forgiveness and then holding that grudge in our heart. So what does it look like? It reflects God's character. It images his heart. And I love this story. And it wasn't until this past week that I realized this. One of the most popular stories in the Bible is this parable of the prodigal son. It's in Luke 15. It's an incredible story of forgiveness. But what I found as I began to think through that this week, particularly forgiveness, I began to go back and realize Luke 15 is the, it's a, it's the story of church discipline in a parable and on display. What do I mean by that? The prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, it begins with the act of discipline where the father has two sons and one of the sons says, hey, give me my inheritance. I'm done with you. I want to go and live on my own. And what does the father do? The father doesn't say, hey, it's okay. You know, just stick around. Let me give you more money. The father says, if you think that's going to bring you happiness and joy, then go. And he gives him the inheritance and he leaves. He's not a part of the family anymore. Friends, that's what that's what the formal church discipline is. That final step is the church going, listen, if you think that this affair, if you think that this action, if you think that this sin will bring you more joy than Jesus, we're not going to hold you here against your will, but you're not in the family anymore if you want to run after it. And so we'll let you run, hopefully that it will lead you to the end of your life and you will come back. So that's first the act of discipline we see there in the story of the prodigal son. And then the hope of discipline or the goal of discipline is seen then later whenever he was longing to eat the food that the pigs ate. And it says this, that the prodigal son came to himself. He went, this is awful. This isn't bringing me the joy that I thought that it would. Let me go back to the father. Let me go back to the one who loves me and will do good for me. This didn't do it. Friends, that's the hope and the goal of discipline, handing them over to Satan, saying, go and run after this thing, hoping that they get to that point, that they come to themselves, that they reach the end of themselves and come to their senses and go, let me go back to the Father. And then finally, the response of discipline is the response of the Father, that when the Son returns, the Son had a whole speech planned out, like, listen, I'll work my way, you know, all the money that I lost for you, I'll work it back. Let me just work for you, don't worry about it, but when he goes back, how does the Father respond? He doesn't come back with the list saying, hey, look, this is how much I'm in the red because of you. You've got a lot of work to do. When the son came back, the father wasn't on the porch tapping his foot. He wasn't sitting in the recliner with the light turned on, waiting for the son to try to sneak past him and go up the stairs. The father was looking for him. And when the father saw him, the father went running to him. And he embraced him, and he accepted him. And as the son began to say his plan to paying him back, the father interrupted him. I said, don't be an idiot. Let's get the finest meal that we have, the biggest party that we can get together. Get the robes, get the ring, because my son who once once lost is, is now found, and he is now completely back in the family. There is no if, ands, buts, or conditions. There is full forgiveness when a sinner repents. Every time, always, that whenever someone comes home, the father is there with open arms every time, whether it's your first time or it's your thousandth time of repentance. This is the heart of the father, and this should be the heart of a church. That whenever a sinner comes back and repents, no matter what it might be, there should be full forgiveness and open arms. This is what Paul is telling the church. 
there may have been a small faction that was pro-Paul, like, hey, Paul, we love you. We're for you. And even as all this dissension was happening and people were talking out against you and this person was removed, he's now repented and come back. And maybe there are those people going, uh, I don't know. They were talking against my Paul. That's one of the things Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians. It says some follow Paul, some follow Apollos. And there may have been this faction of Paul that was loyal, that wasn't ready yet to forgive this guy. He needed to work a little bit more, perhaps. And Paul's going, no, that is not the gospel. And that is not how this works. There is full forgiveness because it reflects God's heart. And it should be offered every single time without condition. It's one of the reasons why I think the most, some of the most incredible and clear examples of God's love are in some of the most extraordinary acts of forgiveness. Now you think about the news, at least in the last year, it feels like there's been a lot of these stories which you have someone who was hurt, wronged, sinned against in remarkable ways. Murder, sexual abuse, and there are these courtroom scenes in which these people get to face the people that did this to them. Brother uh, facing the woman who shot and killed his brother. The Charleston Nine, the families who lost nine of their loved ones who were in church because Dylan Roof walked in the church and killed them. Or Rachel Denhollander, who led the attack against Larry Nasser, who was Michigan State's athletic trainer, also an Olympic gymnast trainer, who sexually abused hundreds of women. And in each one of these, there are these scenes in which the people who are Christians and they look at the offender and they go, I forgive you. Goodness, Brant Jean, most recently, asked the judge if he could go and hug the woman that killed his brother. Friends, you want to talk about an image of God's love? a reflection of his character. It's seen there in the forgiveness. Now, each of those people still had to face the actions they did. Forgiveness doesn't wipe that away, but it reflects God's character. So not only because it's commanded, it it follows God's command, it um, reflects God's character, but also because it blesses God's children. Another reason why we should forgive is because it blesses God's children. It blesses us. Because unforgiveness poisons to not forgive and to hold that grudge or bitterness poisons our hearts. I don't know who it was. I tried to search around. There's like a million people this quote is attributed to, like probably in like the 1980s, but for some reason St. Augustine was also attributed it in like 300 AD. So who knows who said it, but regardless, it was good. And so here it is, paraphrase. Someone said it other than me. Bitterness is a poison that we drink trying to kill the other person. That's what unforgiveness does in our hearts. The author of Hebrews, again, in 1215, writes this, says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up that's causing trouble and defiling many. That the root of bitterness in our own hearts begins to spring up and affect those around us. Unforgiveness poisons. But Paul writes here and says, forgiveness frees us. Forgiveness actually blesses those who offer it. Forgiveness, the act of forgiveness is a choice and a promise. It is not a feeling. You will not feel like forgiving. I don't think ever, probably, unless you're much godlier than I am. Forgiveness is a choice, and forgiveness is a promise. Ken Sandy is an author whom I love and respect and writes a good bit about peacemaking and forgiveness, and he sums it up this way to kind of put handles on it, what forgiveness looks like. He said that forgiveness may be described as a decision that makes four promises. And the promises are this, that by forgiving you, I promise that I will not dwell on this incident. So I won't sit and continue to bring it up in my mind, continue to stir up my frustration with you. Second, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. When I've forgiven you, it does not become another little bullet in my holster that I can bring up in a future argument. Well, you remember that time 17 years ago when you did this? Well, here you go. You're doing it again. Forgiveness says that I will not bring up that incident. Third, I will not talk to others about this incident. Again, there's one of the things we see in Matthew 18. What Jesus doesn't say is when someone sins against you, go and tell everyone else who's around you. He says, no, go and tell the brother. And if they repent, that's the end of it. So I promise that I will not talk to others about this incident. And fourth, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. So whether it's a marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it's friendships, whether it's this church, Listen, I am not naive to think that there are not people in this church that hurt you. I am not naive to think that I have not hurt you. I am a sinner, and I am not perfect, and I will let you down. 
And so we have to understand God's forgiveness for us to begin to step in and forgive one another as that plays itself out in the life of our church. That this place would be a sanctuary and a hospital for sinners because that's what the gospel is. I love Lewis Smedes put it this way. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. That the promise of forgiveness frees us. It blesses us in our children. It fights against what Satan is trying to do. So Paul is saying, make sure to do this, that you're obedient and in your character. If you forgive, I'll forgive as well. Do it so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul knows what the enemy wants to do is drop in a little bit of divisiveness, a little bit of bitterness within his church. Small little root. Take decades to grow, but Satan's fine with that. Paul's saying, no, we cut that off with forgiveness. With the axe head of forgiveness, we take that to the root of bitterness. And Paul is saying, forgiveness actually blesses us. It frees us so that we are not taken advantage of by Satan. We forgive because we have been forgiven. If you don't think you need forgiveness, then you won't give forgiveness. It begins with saying that our debt was cleared. We want to be a church that takes sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. But we also want to be a church that takes forgiveness even more seriously to both experience and reflect the very heart of God who saves and restores sinners. I'll close with this quick story from Corey Tim Boom, who's a Holocaust survivor, um, written a number of books, incredible Christian woman. She lost both her husband, I mean her father and her sister to the Nazi regime, were murdered by them. And coming out of then the Holocaust, she struggled with what this meant for her in her life. She would go around and teach. She said she felt hollow kind of teaching this message of God's grace. And then she came face to face with a man that asked for her forgiveness and stuck out his hand, who was a part of the Nazi regime. He said, can you forgive me? And she said, in a moment, it all came to her front. It all came to her face. And she asked herself, do I believe this? She stuck out her hand. So when she shook his hand, she said, it felt as though God's love rushed through my arm and into his, and something changed within me. She put it this way. She said, you never so you never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive your enemies. You never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive your enemies. And then she says this, she's given a speech, she put it this way, she said, can you forgive? No, you can't. And I can't either, but he can. And so we rest in God's spirit, we rest in God's grace to be a church that forgives, to be a church that takes sin seriously and to be a church that reflects God's character in holiness and in mercy. Let's pray.